This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. E. Fuller Torrey is a research psychiatrist specializing in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. He is the executive director of the Stanley Medical Research Institute, the founder of the Treatment Advocacy Center, and a professor of psychiatry at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. He was educated at Princeton University, McGill University, and Stanford University School of Medicine. He is the author of over 20 books. His latest book is American Psychosis, How the Federal Government Destroyed the Mental Illness Treatment System. As he began that book, he wrote these words, I don't know why other people write books, but for me, it is a selfish enterprise. I write to answer questions that are bothering me. It's a good thing that he wrote this book, and I'm glad to know that this question bothered him. I'm looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Tory. Dr. Torrey, your book, American Psychosis, How the Federal Government Destroyed the Mental Illness Treatment System, is about more than that subtitle, but it begins with one of the most interesting stories from American history that points to the intersection of the personal and the political. You begin with the story of the Kennedy family. It does indeed, Dr. Mueller, and that's really the beginning of, uh, uh, of, of how things changed radically for the mentally ill in the United States. What the... What the Kennedy family had is they had a daughter, Rosemary, who was mildly retarded at birth, almost certainly because her mother had been infected with the influenza virus. She was born in 1918 when it was going through Boston at the height of the... Uh, and, and we know that that can cause some mental retardation. Uh, however, Rosemary was not really bad off. She was able to function at a fourth or fifth grade level. However, when she got to be about age 20, she developed psychotic symptoms on top, what sounds like a form of schizophrenia. That also can be caused by the influenza virus in during pregnancy on it. And that was a potential disaster for the family. Uh, first of all, in 1941, families did not admit that they had mentally ill people. It was terribly stigmatized. And secondly, they're a very politically ambitious uh, family. The father was determined to uh, get high national office for himself or other members of the family. And then the daughter, Rosemary, became progressively more psychotic and with major problems in her behavior. And there was really no medication available at that time. So the father, Joe Kennedy, had a lobotomy done on her. Lobotomy at that time was one of the only things that they did. It really is a desperation kind of uh, treatment. And it turned out to be an utter disaster. It left Rosemary profoundly retarded and really functioning at a three- or four-year-old level for the rest of her life on it. That was then when, when John Kennedy became president, that was then the impetus to do something for the mentally ill and mentally retarded in the United States, although publicly the family never said anything about it, of course. You know, one of the questions that came to my mind in reading your book, and, and by the way, it includes a chilling, absolutely chilling recounting of how the lobotomy was done, uh, I, I had the question, is there a link between the lobotomy and her later development of mental illness or, or, or merely the, uh, the mental incapacitation? Well, the mental illness came on as it usually does in the late teens or early 20s. And it was the mental illness that then forced the hand of, the, uh, of her father that led to the lobotomy. But the mild mental retardation by itself 
uh, would not have led. In fact, they would never have done a lobotomy on someone who was just mildly retarded. But people who had major behavioral problems and very psychotic, uh, violent behavior and things like that, out of desperation at that time, uh, they were doing lobotomies. And it's a very crude operation. It cuts part of the brain. Uh, and in some cases, it led to some decrease in violent behavior. Uh, but in this case, it was an utter disaster and just led to uh, she was almost a vegetable for the rest of her life. Well, that had profound impact on the Kennedy family, and that led especially when John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States to an increased federal attention to the whole question of mental illness and mental retardation, and you tell that story extremely well, and I think it's a story that, given our current circumstances and controversies, desperately needs to be told. Draw us a line from Rosemary Kennedy to the federalization of mental illness and of of mental retardation concerns in the late 50s and especially in the 1960s. Uh, That's absolutely right, and that was really the beginning of a shift of responsibility from the state governments to the federal government, uh, a, a shift which in retrospect has been, I think, a major mistake on it. Up until that time, Dr. Mueller, the states were in charge of people with both mental retardation and mental illness. That's why we had the state mental hospitals, which were very widespread at that time. The federal government had never played much role uh, in this at all on it, and it was John Kennedy who basically changed that and said, we will provide a federal program and basically take the responsibility away from the states. Uh, It was done with the best of intentions, as many federal policies are, uh, but in retrospect, it was exactly the wrong thing to do. Uh, The federal government, I believe, personally does a few things well. It does some research well. It does wars well when, uh, when it has to on it. But it doesn't do social services or medical services very well at all. And this has been really the origin of why we have the problems we have today uh, because of the federal involvement in, these, in taking over the services for the mentally ill. You know, when I saw your book and immediately knew I wanted to read it, uh, again, the title's American Psychosis. The, the subtitle uh, sounds perhaps to many people less interesting, and, and that is how the federal government destroyed the mental illness treatment system. But I want to tell our listeners, I think this book is profoundly important. And not only that, it is an incredibly riveting narrative, but because you're really telling us about how the best of political intentions led to some of the worst of personal disasters and to a pathological situation that we face right now. So I'm going to ask you to tell that story as you do in your book. If you were to rewind history to the midpoint of the 20th century, the states are responsible for, for mental health care. They may not be doing it elegantly, but the, uh, the, the way it is assumed that it should be done is by institutionalizing those who have very significant mental health problems or, or, or mental illness. But by the time you get to the end of the 1960s, there is an entire pattern of changed ideas of a federal assumption of authority, of a, a deinstitutionalization of mental health patients, and, and basically a problem of homelessness and crime that inevitably followed that. Uh, what you say is exactly true. And one of the great ironies is that the shift from the states to the federal government, which started in the 1960s, came at exactly the same time when, for the first time in history, we had effective treatment to treat the seriously mentally ill people. We had the introduction of what we call the antipsychotic drugs. Prior to about 1960, 
we had almost nothing to offer them, and that's why uh, Joe Kennedy did the lobotomy, had the lobotomy done on his daughter, because there were no other, there was nothing else to offer. But just at the time where we got an effective treatment and where the states could have really taken off and done a good job, that's when the feds decided, no, we'll make this a federal issue and have these community mental health centers, and you states don't have to worry about this anymore. One of the reasons I did the book was because I was intrigued with, I, I knew many of the people involved. I started work at NIMH, National Institutes of Mental Health, in 1970. Many of the people I write about in the book I knew personally, and I went back and checked with many of them. And the thing that is most striking is almost to a person, they really meant well. They thought they were doing a good job, and yet in retrospect, as we look back, uh, it has been a disaster. It has led to the number of mentally ill homeless we have, the number of mentally ill in jails and prisons, and certainly to an increase in the number of homicides committed by people with severe mental illnesses who are not being treated. You know, it strikes me in reading your book that there are there are some minor changes in nomenclature that can indicate massive changes in worldview and approach. One of them is the shift from a mental health asylum to a community mental health center. More is changed there than real estate. You really tell an incredible story of how that reconceptualized how we should consider mentally ill people and, and how they should be treated. Well, the, the state hospitals were set up starting in the 1840s, 1850s. Uh, they were set up to take care of the people with the most severe illnesses. And by most severe illnesses, I mean schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, severe depression. Uh, these are kind of the heart and core of the autism also, I would add, in there. And the, the state hospitals, although they had no effective treatment until the 1960s, they did provide asylum. They did provide some uh, protection for people who were severely mentally ill and who often could not protect themselves on it. Now, there were certainly abuses in the hospitals also because there were no effective treatments on it. But what, by shifting it to the federal government, the federal government basically said, well, we'll close down those hospitals because they're not very nice places, and we will set up these federally funded community mental health centers. Well, the problem was from day, the, from day one, the federally funded community mental health centers had little or no interest, with a few exceptions, had little or no interest in taking care of those severely mentally ill people who were coming from the state mental hospitals. So what we did effectively is we were emptying out the hospitals. We were very good at that, but then not providing the treatment for them once they were in the community. The community mental health centers since they were not interested in the people with severe mental illnesses, became, oh, psychotherapy centers for what I would call the worried well. They did a lot of psychotherapy for less severe mental illnesses. Uh, a few of them did a good job, but those are very few and far between. Most of the community mental health centers that were funded with federal funds failed to take care of the people who were coming out of the hospitals. So you had, from day one, you had a pending disaster, and you could absolutely predict the kinds of problems that we have today just by looking at what was going on by the late 60s. Several paragraphs of your book are, are just riveting. One is, is this paragraph. You write, during the decade of the 1960s, public psychiatric care in the United States changed markedly. At the beginning of the decade, states and counties have been actively developing programs 
to provide follow-up care for patients already being discharged from the state hospitals. By the end of the decade, state and local efforts had largely ceased, usurped by the Federal Community Mental Health Center's program. You then end that paragraph by saying, By 1969, however, it had become clear that prevention, the centerpiece of the federal mental health program, was without substance. That sentence cries out for some elaboration. What did you mean when you wrote that prevention, the centerpiece of the federal mental health program, was without substance? The, one of the great surprises was when I went back and looked at the old records was to find how much was going on at the state level just as the community mental health centers were starting. In other words, the states were really picking up. There was medication available. They were starting to provide their own mental health centers and to focus on the people with severe mental illnesses. But this is by the very earliest community mental health centers were funded in the mid-60s. Even within the first few years, the studies that were done on them showed that the mental health centers were not taking care of the people coming from the state hospitals. And if you go back and look at the reports within the National Institutes of Mental Health at that time, it was very clear to the people even in the center, in the mental health, in the uh, National Institutes of Mental Health at that time, that the program was not working. However, also very clear that by then it had become politicized. And so once something starts in Washington, Dr. Moeller, it's very hard to stop it. Well, you make that point very graphically, and similar points are made when people consider the, the way the federal defense budget works or just about the, the entitlement programs. When you start something, it becomes an industry with all kinds of uh, well constellations of, of feeder organizations and all the rest and all kinds of vested interests. And you mention uh, financial incentives that basically became very perverse incentives in terms of the mental health picture. But in the same, in the same chapter in which you deal with that uh, failure of prevention – you also go to something else, and, and I want to back up and say I really appreciate the, the way you, uh, you, you stated that uh, many of these things, though disastrous, were done with the best of intentions. So I, I, I want to grant sympathetically the best of intentions to all parties here, but that does lead me to a very hard question. Why did anyone, such as a series of federal judges and, uh, and groups like the American Civil Liberties Union, why did they believe that people had basically a constitutional right to be mentally ill? and to be deinstitutionalized regardless of the state of their illness? I think a lot of it was, was ignorance. A lot of it was a ideology. The ideology, remember, this is the era of uh, the civil rights issue, the civil rights movement, and so the mentally ill, in a sense, became another group that needed to be freed. And this was done by people who had really no understanding of what was wrong with the mentally ill uh, at all on it. These were people who had read Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and thought that the people in the hospital really didn't have anything much wrong with them, that the evil psychiatrist had locked them up, and really all you needed to do was uh, open up the doors and let them out, and they'd live happily ever after. Well, of course, we know now that's not true. We know these people have brain diseases, but the lawyers and the civil rights people who passed a lot of the legislation that has led to the release of the mentally ill people without any treatment really didn't understand any of this and they had a political ideology that nobody should be forced to do anything nobody should ever be held involuntarily in a hospital and they thought that by freeing people they were doing the society a favor Uh, in retrospect of course we know how wrong they were
A book like American Psychosis by Dr. Tori helps us to understand patterns that we see in the culture at large. The deinstitutionalization of the severely mentally ill is something that we see. We see it in the phenomena of the homeless, and we see it also in current political debates. We see it in a failed mental health industry, and we also see it in broken lives. And, and we see it in a society at large that seems to have lost any sane understanding of what mental illness is and how those who have severe mental illnesses should be treated and cared for. And as I talked to Dr. Tori, it became more and more clear that even as many people are looking at the parts, very few are looking at the whole. And he's looking at the whole question. He tells it in terms of a narrative, and then he documents it with an incredible amount of data. He also brings more than four decades of personal experience as a psychiatrist to this book, and thankfully, also to this conversation. I think the most uh, clarifying sentence in your entire book is found on page 148 when you write, The freedom to be insane is a cruel hoax perpetuated on those who cannot think clearly by those who will not think clearly. That's exactly right. Um, the, to, to have a severe mental illness, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, is really a terrible thing. There's nothing nice about these diseases at all. Uh, they take over your mind. You're not able to think clearly. You hear voices. You have delusional thinking. Uh, that's that's really not any freedom at all. You're you're not free because you're constrained by a biological illness of your brain. Your brain is not working normally. And yet the civil libertarian civil rights lawyers who insisted on just letting everybody out of the hospital without providing follow up treatment for them. Uh, really were, were, were doing, it, it was a cruel fate for many of these people, who many end up homeless on the streets. Many to this day, an increasing number, are in jails and prisons. Uh, so it, it is a cruel hoax. There's no question about that. Well, you talk about the people who still defend the right of homeless, mentally ill people to be free. You put uh, quotation marks, ellipses around free to live on the sidewalk, under a bridge, or in jail. What they don't realize, you write, is that most such people are not free. Rather, their actions are dictated by their delusions and auditory hallucinations, however irrational those may be. You cite uh, psychiatrist Gary Meyer, who put it, quote, when the personal freedom of the mentally ill is given priority over all other considerations, the tyranny of some will jeopardize the autonomy of all, end quote. Yeah, I thought that captured, uh, I thought his quote captured it very well. I volunteered for 16 years, from the early 80s till the late 90s, in the homeless shelters in Washington uh, twice a month, and uh, took care of many, 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 several hundred people with severe mental illnesses who were homeless. And I can tell you that the quality of life for someone who is severely mentally ill and living on the streets, uh, both men and women, uh, is really a living hell. Uh, they're victimized, uh, having their money stolen, being raped, um, it, it, it's all very common and as well as freezing to death and not getting medical care. Uh, the fact that we have tolerated this for so long, I think, is a real blot on our society and our failure to understand the fact that these people really need help. 
In your book, you talk about the reasons why we have arrived at this point, and, and you tell a story that we traced in the beginning but didn't follow through. If you can quickly summarize, how did we get from the 1960s uh, to the, the second decade of the 21st century? A lot, a lot took place, and a lot of it was sheerly political, but political with a lot of psychiatric and worldview implications. Well, like everything in Washington, Dr. Mueller, it becomes political very quickly. And the Community Mental Health Center program became an icon for the Kennedy years, and especially then after Kennedy was assassinated, uh, it was associated with him. And so to be against community mental health centers was somehow to be against Kennedy, uh, to be against Democrats, and, you know, only those mean Republicans would try and say that this program wasn't working. And so when I was in NIMH, when I first came there in 1970, it was very, very clear by then that the whole thing had developed into a Republican-Democrat uh, standoff. And if you, if you criticize the community mental health centers, you are assumed to be a Republican because Democrats, uh, if they, even though they knew that the program wasn't working, uh, you simply didn't say so. And by the time you arrive at the uh, at the, the beginning of the 21st century, it's not working. Virtually everyone knows it's not working, and yet no one seems to have the political or, the, for that matter, the uh, the psychiatric will to solve the problem. You you don't end your book without suggesting what would make the situation far better. Walk us through what you would have us now to do. Well, you're absolutely right. We've gone on for 40 to 50 years with a failed program. Each year is getting worse. Uh, I've been tracking, for example, the number of mentally ill in jails and prisons. It has gone up steadily, steadily since 1965, 70, and we can count it getting worse. So the question is, what would we do? What, what should we do if we had a magic wand in Washington? The first thing I would do is I would, I would put the responsibility back at the state level. I do not think the federal government knows how to do this. I don't think they can. I think the country is too big and the states are too diverse. And I don't think the federal government has the wisdom to order these kinds of uh, programs for the whole country on it. But I would also then hold the state responsible. I would give the state the money that goes with it. Uh, and I would then measure the outcome. And we can measure the outcome by seeing how these people are doing, how many are homeless, how many are in jails and prison. Uh, how many are living reasonably good lives? How many are uh, working part-time? Uh, so, yes, I would put the responsibility at the state, and I would then hold the governor and the, and the legislature responsible for that. It would be a political issue at the state level. So when someone is running for governor, not only would their, their education policy be very clear, but their policy of what you do with a severely mentally ill would be very clear also, and that would be for public discussion. I think that's the first and mo most important thing. The second thing is we clearly need leadership. We've had virtually no leadership on this at all, uh, either at the federal or the state level, and I can say this is an equal opportunity political disaster. We've had five Democrat and five Republican presidents during this period. Not a single one of them has really understood the problem. Uh, Carter made a uh, one effort, and uh, the first Ford made one effort on it, but they didn't really understand the problem and didn't improve it at all. Uh, the first person who has really shown some leadership emerged this year in Congress, uh, Republican Congressman Tim Murphy from Pennsylvania. He has do, introduced some legislation uh, 
uh, last year, which is the first federal effort that I have seen to start to shift things and to put the responsibility back where it belongs. Uh, but so far, uh, so far we're simply going downhill. We've been going downhill, and until there's more awareness among the public of what is needed, uh, I don't think things are going to get better. I was really interested to read in your book some uh, some explanations that clarified our current situation in terms of how things became what they are now. You use a very interesting phrase, and that's trans-institutionalization. And, uh, and by that you mean that even though we say, uh, and as a culture claim, that the severely mentally ill have been deinstitutionalized, they've basically been transferred from one kind of institution to another. So you point out that the two institutions – that basically have become the well, actually, you mentioned two in particular, but many others that that have become the the holding uh, pattern for people who had previously been in these state mental uh, asylums. That they're they're now basically in prisons and in nursing homes, uh, having been trans institutionalized, to use your phrase, into those two new settings. Uh, that's exactly right. We, in fact, we released a report this week that. Uh, claims that there are now 10 times more people with serious mental illness in jails and prisons in the United States as remaining in the state mental hospitals. So there's about 365,000 people with severe mental illnesses in the jails and prisons today. There's also about 200,000 of them who are homeless, and there's an uncounted number, probably three to 400,000, who are in nursing homes. So, yes, we say we've deinstitutionalized, that we've emptied out the hospitals, but many of these same people now are in different institutions. Certainly nursing homes are very much like uh, where they came from, from the state hospitals. Uh, jails and prisons, of course, are much worse. Uh, so it hasn't really been deinstitutionalization. As I mentioned, it's simply been transinstitutionalization from one kind of an institution to another. So I had a horrifying thought as I read that chapter, and, and that is this. So are we now supposedly progressed as a society to the point in which we simply wait for someone to commit a horrible crime? And, and many of them are horrible, as you document. Uh, but we wait for people to commit a criminal act before we will face up to the reality of mental illness. And so we just transfer the insane asylum into a prison and, and have to build these massive uh, mental health wings onto our prisons and jails. That's exactly what we're doing. And it really it is horrifying. Uh, and one of the things and one of the reasons I wrote the book and do the public education that I try and do is to make people realize that, to make people realize that it was not always this way. You know, in terms of the jails and prisons, we've gone back to where we were about 150 years ago. 150 years ago, there were a lot of people with mental illness in the jails and prisons. So Dorothea Dick said, and other, other people with Dorothea Dick said, we should build some hospitals and transfer the people to the hospitals, which they did. And by the 1870s, 1880s, there were relatively few people with mental illness left in the jails and prisons. We have now reversed all that. We've gone back really pretty much to where we were in 1830, 1840. Uh, I don't think this is progress, and I think we ought to be ashamed of it. There were some other huge insights from your book, and, and quite honestly, it gets to a basic worldview level, which uh, is really of interest to me. And uh, unexpectedly, in terms of one of the twists and turns in your narrative and documentation, I came across the fact that uh, the two figures you mentioned, uh, and both of them Republican presidents, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, basically represented 
what you described, and by the way, you geographically located it in terms of intensity in places like Orange County, California. You said that at that point there was a huge distrust in the entire field of psychiatry. That existed then, still exists to some extent. Uh, It comes from a variety of sources. One, it comes from the Soviet model where the dissidents in the Soviet Union were put in the psychiatric hospital to discredit them. It comes a little bit from Nazi Germany where the, uh, the Nazis under Hitler killed many of the mentally ill people in the hospital. Uh, so that there is a distrust of psychiatry uh, that has been quite widespread in, uh, in the United States. It's less now than it was. But that has also impaired our understanding. People don't understand that why we have to have mental hospitals, why we have to sometimes treat people involuntarily, because they have brain diseases. And that has also led to some of the politicalization of it, in that the people in the mental health field are often widely regarded as being liberals and Democrats, and some of the opposition is regarded as being conservative and Republicans on it. And that has really slowed down our understanding. It's impaired the dialogue. Uh, you know, this is these are brain diseases. Uh, schizophrenia is no more a Republican or Democrat disease than diabetes is. And uh, the fact that this has become politicized has really been to the detriment of all of us because uh, it has made it much more difficult to move forward with a joint understanding of what needs to be done. You know, at the same time, I think it's kind of like is is uh, the case in so many other issues, though. If everything is psychiatry, then nothing is psychiatry. And if everything is mental illness, then nothing is mental illness. And so I bet if you go into a major trade bookstore in, in a place like Orange County, you're going to find a self-help pop psychology section that's going to be massive. Because uh, I, I think most Americans think of psychiatry in terms of what you very interestingly def- defined a few moments ago as the worried well. Uh, whereas you're really concerned as a practicing psychiatrist with, with decades of experience with those who have very serious mental illness. So I want to ask you, define mental illness. Help us to understand uh, a definition of what we're actually talking about when we're, when we're talking about this kind of, of genuine mental illness. Well, the problem you're raising is absolutely right, and that is that what was originally mental illness in the United States, and in fact the origins of the American Psychiatric Association, was a organization of the superintendents who ran the state mental hospitals. So originally what was psychiatry in the United States was serious mental illness. It were brain diseases, and we know these are brain diseases, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe depression. These, these are diseases of the brain where the chemistry of the brain is out of whack and which can, in most cases, be treated uh, with medications and sometimes with therapy as well on it. But what happened then over the years is that psychiatrists became more and more ambitious and developed a wider and wider uh, purview of what they should be looking at. So at this point, if you look at the, the, the handbook of the American Psychiatric Association, uh, it doesn't just include things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. It includes all kinds of human behavior. Uh, most of which I personally don't regard as a disease. I regard as behavior or unpleasant behavior, but not diseases. So the whole thing becomes a big mishmash of not only 
brain diseases, but mixed in with all kinds of human behaviors. And that's one problem that a lot of the public has, is they think that the psychiatrists are uh, taking too much on themselves, and that the drug companies are trying to provide drugs for behaviors that are not brain diseases, but are, uh, are human behaviors. You know, I think uh, speaking, uh, if, if I may, on behalf of many of those who are very concerned about that, uh, what Christopher Lash called the triumph of the therapeutic, and uh, and uh, Philip Reef, excuse me, uh, uh, the the triumph of the therapeutic. What you're looking at there is the reality that uh, that there is serious mental illness, and, and I think uh, Christians operating out of a biblical worldview. Uh, who are very suspicious ab- about the the making of everything into a mental problem that that the answer uh, therefore is uh, is therapy are still understand there is a reality of serious mental illness and and I think your book helps to clarify the kinds of things that should genuinely be understood to require psychiatric treatment and, and the kinds of of uh, of concerns that ought to lead the public to believe that something has to change I think that's absolutely right. And I think the fact that the psychiatrists have taken so much on themselves uh, has discredited the attempts by those of us who really focus on severe mental illness because the public gets confused. They, they think the whole thing all runs together. Uh, when, in fact, when, in fact, something like schizophrenia, which is what my sister had for many, many years on it, uh, the evidence is overwhelming that something gets in the brain and changes the, the chemistry in the brain and uh, that that is a brain disease. It's like Alzheimer's disease. It's like multiple sclerosis. It's like Parkinson's disease, etc. But that's quite different from somebody who's going through a mild depression or anxiety, uh, which are normal human behaviors uh, and not real brain diseases on it. But the way psychiatry is organized, the whole thing becomes mixed together, and it makes it difficult for the public to understand that some of these really are brain diseases and really need to be treated like any other brain disease is treated. You end your book citing a book written in 1947, Frank Wright. The book was Out of Sight, Out of Mind. The book stated, Throughout history, the problem of the mentally ill has been dodged. We have continually avoided mental patients. We've segregated them, ostracized them, turned our backs on them, tried to forget them. We have allowed intolerable conditions to exist for the mentally ill through our ignorance and indifference. We can no longer afford to disregard their needs, to turn a deaf ear to their call for help. We must come face to face with the facts. You then end with the question, isn't it time to finally do so? Do do you think the nation has this as as a major concern in the present that could actually lead to change? I'd like to think we're moving in the right direction, Dr. Moeller, on it. I've, I've been watching this for longer than I want to remember. But I'm encouraged that within the last, uh, the last two, three years, especially following some of these major shootings like Newtown and Aurora and Tucson, uh, the general public now seems to realize that there is something seriously wrong, that we have uh, untreated mentally ill people who are committing horrific acts, and that whatever we're doing is not working very well. That's uh, that's different from five, ten years ago, and certainly from twenty years ago, where I don't think the general public really had the understanding that things are not going well. Uh, in addition, I'm encouraged, as I mentioned earlier, by the legislation that Representative Murphy has introduced in Congress. I am encouraged to see a member of Congress step forward and say, "This system is a mess. Uh, the way we're treating the mentally ill is a mess. We need to do it better." 
this is something we haven't seen before. Uh, at least I haven't seen in the 45 years I've been in Washington. Uh, and that gives me some hope that things may change uh, before, before too many years. The book is American Psychosis, How the Federal Government Destroyed the Mental Illness Treatment System. The author is Dr. E. Fuller Torrey. Dr. Torrey, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. My great pleasure, Dr. Mueller. Thank you for having me. In retrospect, I think I read Dr. Torrey's book from several different vantage points. At one point, I was reading as a concerned American citizen. As an American citizen who's been tracking the political process and its interaction with psychiatry, and in particular has been looking at how politically and culturally we've come to deal with the severely mentally ill. I also, however, read the book as someone who has a deep worldview interest in what's going on in this country and what lies behind and beneath the political and psychiatric considerations that tend to dominate the headlines. And looking at it from that perspective, I had the deep interest in understanding why did certain people believe that certain actions could be plausible? What view of the human being was beneath the understanding of mental illness, or for that matter, the absence of mental illness? And of course, you look at this from a worldview perspective, and you recognize that that's one of the problems. You had politicians looking at this with a certain worldview, and psychiatrists trained in psychiatric disciplines and in the school of medicine with that worldview. And then, of course, you had underlying worldview issues that are far more determinative even than those those that are basically theological and ideological in orientation. And that gets me to my third vantage point. I read this book as a Christian theologian, and as a theologian who quite publicly has grave concerns about the entire mental health complex, the triumph of the therapeutic, the translation of theological problems and theological issues, biblical concerns into the merely psychiatric or psychological, and often at the most popular level in the self-help category. The triumph of the therapeutic has been spiritually disastrous, even as the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill has been likewise disastrous. And so reading the book from several different vantage points, the good news is I found value in every single reading. In other words, this really is an important book. My fear is that it will escape a great deal of public attention because people will think it will be of interest only to mental health professionals or perhaps to the politicians and, and kinds of administrators and public leaders dealing with the questions. But it really should be of concern to all of us. My favorite part of the conversation with Dr. Tory was actually when we got to the end and I asked him to define mental illness. And I thought some of his most perceptive comments came not just in tracing the problem of the, of the federalization of the mental health care system in America, but furthermore, the failure of the entire field of psychiatry to limit itself to the kinds of severe mental illnesses that, as he said, were the originating concern of the medical specialty in the first place. The triumph of the therapeutic, the translation of everything into pop psychology, the, the assumption on the part of most Americans that if something is wrong with them, it must be psychiatric to be cured with therapy or a pill, that has been spiritually disastrous. It is a great theological and biblical and spiritual evasion, and it has infected the church horribly. That's why it is so important to have a return to a biblical sanity on these issues through fields such as biblical counseling and why we have to unthink the wisdom of the world in trying to think as Christians about what we should consider when we are dealing with someone who might be actually severely mentally ill. We have to understand that in a Genesis 3 world, we actually do believe that there are severe mental illnesses. We do believe that there are some that are actually rightly under the care of medical professionals. And we need to be clear about that. 
But we also need to be clear about the fact that even a psychiatrist like Dr. Tory understands that vast millions of Americans who think they need psychology or psychiatry in terms of treatment or therapy actually are what he called, and I loved his expression, the worried well. These worried well have no symptoms of any kind of major psychiatric illness. And yet, we are selling pills and therapies by the millions of pills and the millions of hours of therapy, and we're telling them you can find salvation in therapy or in a pill. And the reality is that both of those are horrible lies. That's why as Christians read this book, we are looking at it from that third vantage point, the vantage point of the Christian biblical worldview, and there is much to be gained here. There's a great deal of evidence about what it means to look at societies rather inept, although, as Dr. Tory said very clearly, often well-intended efforts to deal with many among us who desperately need help. He also deals with something in this book that Christians need to face very clearly, and that is the fact that there is a sinful stigma on so many mental illnesses and those who genuinely need help. And the sinfulness isn't upon those who need help. The sinfulness is upon those who will refuse to look at it for what it is and furthermore find embarrassment in dealing with this as an issue. These are not just people who had been formerly locked up in insane asylums and psychiatric hospitals. These are people we knew as brothers and sisters, cousins and aunts and uncles, mothers and fathers, as fellow members of churches, as those within our neighborhoods, those who deserved our care and concern, not our scorn and disinterest. Finally, it was also really interesting to read how Dr. Tory organized this book, beginning with the personal tragedy in the Kennedy family, and suggesting that it was guilt that motivated that family, the guilt over the treatment of their daughter and sister Rosemary, that led that family to want to do something when it came to mental illness. And yet, as he makes very clear in this book, doing something in some cases is worse than doing nothing. But he doesn't actually argue that nothing should have been done. He just argues that something better than what happened should have happened, and what's better than what happened can happen now. And as we look at this book and as we consider these issues, Christians need to come face to face with the realities that he discusses in this book and understand that we too, committed to human flourishing, as we come to understand that every single human being isn't merely psychiatrically healthy or unhealthy, but an individual made in God's image. That changes our perspective infinitely. And it also makes the importance of a book like this even more clear. And the conversation we just had even more valuable. And for that, I'm very grateful. Again, many thanks to my guest, Dr. Fuller Torrey, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on June 23 through 26, or June 30 through July 3, for the 2014 D3 Youth Conference. It's designed to develop students' understanding of leadership, worldview, and missions. D3 will set the foundations for discipleship and will forge friendships with like-minded young Christians. For more information, go to events.sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mobler.